The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. I think in a patient with an initial episode of diverticulitis, even if your suspicion for complication is low, a CT scan should be done to make sure that you have the right diagnosis. Maybe 1% of patients or 1 in 100 will end up having a colon cancer that was originally misdiagnosed as diverticulitis. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's podcast will focus on an article from the In the Clinic section of the Annals of Internal Medicine titled Acute Colonic Diverticulitis. With us today to discuss the article is the senior author of the article, Dr. Lisa Strait. Dr. Strait is Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. She's also the Gastroenterology Section Chief at Harborview Medical Center. Her research has focused on the epidemiology and prevention of diverticulitis, including studies of diet, lifestyle, inflammation, and the intestinal microbiota. I believe you will really enjoy this discussion of all the questions that at least I had about this common diagnosis. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. Your article from In the Clinic on Acute Colonic Diverticulitis is just outstanding. I loved reading it, and it made me think of a recent patient that I had. I had a 45-year-old man who was admitted to my service with uncomplicated diverticulitis. He mostly had left and right lower quadrant pain, but on exam, it was clearly more significant on the left side. He had no guarding and no rebound. He had a slightly elevated white count. It was only about 11,000. He had no C-reactive protein done. We looked at the CT with the radiologist, and he said it was uncomplicated diverticulitis. He had not had it before. So the first question I have for you is, how important is it to determine whether you're uncomplicated versus complicated, and how do you contrast those? I think it's very important to determine whether someone has complicated or uncomplicated disease because the treatment algorithms are different for each of those categories. Complicated disease is disease that presents with an abscess, a perforation, or more chronically, an obstruction, stricture, or fistula. And uncomplicated disease is sort of everything else, which is really just diverticulitis that presents with a localized inflammation to the colon. In terms of how we classify complicated and uncomplicated disease, the Hinchy criteria have traditionally been used. It's important to note that those were developed in the 1960s to guide acute surgical intervention. And as we learn more about diverticular disease and more nuanced approaches, those Hinchy criteria have been modified and I think don't always help us in guiding treatment. And if someone wants to know more about the Hinchy criteria, they're part of your article, which I found very useful. So we have both outpatient doctors and inpatient doctors listening to this podcast. Let's say this patient comes into my clinic and I'm trying to decide, do I need to admit the patient? How do you decide who you're going to admit? 
how do you decide when you're going to get a CT scan? Unfortunately, we don't have really robust studies to help guide us on who we should admit and who we should not admit. But in general, the complicated versus uncomplicated disease is an important distinction. And in order to diagnose complicated versus uncomplicated disease, you generally need imaging. In Europe, ultrasound is often used, but in the U.S., CT scanning is the most often used. I think in a patient with an initial episode of diverticulitis, even if your suspicion for complication is low, a CT scan should be done to make sure that you have the right diagnosis because our clinical criteria aren't perfect in determining diverticulitis versus other disorders. Once a CT scan is done and a patient has uncomplicated disease, you need to consider comorbid illness. Is the patient immunocompromised? Do they have significant comorbid diseases? Are they elderly? Those would all be things to push me towards admitting a patient even with uncomplicated disease. And then of course the severity, even if it's uncomplicated disease, if there are any signs of sepsis or severe infection, I would consider admitting those patients. And then if patients are less severe, do they tolerate POs? Will they stay sufficiently hydrated at home? Will they be able to tolerate antibiotics should you choose to treat them with antibiotics? And then are they compliant? Would they be available for close follow-up are all things that I would consider whether or not to admit a patient or send them home for outpatient therapy. In this particular patient is fairly young. We did not mention any significant comorbid diseases or immunocompromise. And by CT and laboratory values in your clinical exam seems to have mild uncomplicated disease. So would be appropriate for outpatient treatment. Well, I first saw him when he was admitted, and I think he was mostly admitted because he really was anorexic at the time because of the pain. And so we did give him some IV fluids. As someone who has done a lot of work on diverticulitis, if we're at the same hospital, when should I call you? When should I call surgery? As a, an academic hospitalist, should I take care of this patient by myself and try to avoid calling gastroenterology? I think there are reasons to involve surgery and gastroenterology that are acute, like in this setting, and then some more long-term issues. So in the acute setting, I think in this patient with uncomplicated disease, there wouldn't be a need for a surgical consultation at this point. I also think it's not important to involve gastroenterology up front, but patients with diverticulitis need follow-up later on for a colonoscopy. Current guidelines recommend a colonoscopy be done four to eight weeks later. And so more subacutely gastroenterology could be involved in this patient. There are other long-term reasons that you might involve surgery and gastroenterology, such as if you didn't improve, had recurrent disease, had ongoing lingering symptoms that you weren't sure were due to diverticulitis. Those might be reasons for this particular patient to see surgery or gastroenterology down the line. But most of the patients that we take care of, what percentage are complicated and what percentage are uncomplicated? My sense is that we're taking care of a lot of uncomplicated diverticulitis. Yeah, current estimates are that 85 to 90% of patients have uncomplicated disease. So it is the majority of patients that we're seeing. So we did not get a consultation at discharge. We did do a GI consultation for colonoscopy, and we'll talk about that again in a second. The big decision, and as you know, I was asked to write an editorial about whether or not antibiotics are needed for uncomplicated diverticulitis based upon, the, I think it was the 2015 American Gastroenterological Association guidelines that you don't necessarily need to give antibiotics. I've done it. It always makes my residents and interns nervous. Do you do it? How do you decide whether to give antibiotics or not? And why is this even an issue? Yes, I do do it. 
To back up, we've been treating patients for decades with antibiotics without any evidence that antibiotics impact the outcome. There have been two recent fairly large randomized controlled trials, both performed in Europe, that indicate that time to resolution of symptoms is no different in patients who receive antibiotics versus those who don't receive antibiotics. They also found no difference in complications and the need for surgery in recurrence. And these data were used to inform the fairly recent AGA guidelines. There have also been multiple European guidelines that have suggested even more strongly that antibiotics are not necessary in uncomplicated diverticulitis based on these two randomized trials. I think that there's recently been one longer-term study. One of these trials, they followed patients out to two years. Again, there were no statistical differences between the two arms, but an editorial written that dug a little bit deeper into the data, if you included patients who were censored, the rate of elective surgery was higher in patients that did not have antibiotics versus those that did. And I think one of the reasons that the U.S. guidelines were reluctant to firmly recommend no antibiotics were both the quality of the studies, but I think that the quality based on power. If you look at outcomes such as complication, does a person have an abscess Do they have some more significant complication of diverticulitis down the line? The number of patients in those categories, very small in both of these trials. So the trials really weren't powered to look at complications. They were powered to look at time to recovery. So I think we've gone from this very simple guideline that everyone receives antibiotics to a very nuanced approach to the disease, understanding that antibiotics have a lot of negative consequences for society and perhaps for our patients if they're overused. And I take a very individualized approach. I think I'm fortunate in that I usually don't see patients with incident disease. I see patients with recurrence. And with recurrent disease, people tend to present with a pretty typical presentation. I know that they've done well in the past, are likely to do well again, and have really received a lot of antibiotics and often have suffered side effects of antibiotics. And so in that situation, I just present the data. If I have a well-informed patient who wants to know the data, I just state that we don't know, state that what we do know is that recovery is not faster with antibiotics in an average patient, but that some of these longer-term outcomes are uncertain, and make it an individualized decision. And would you recommend that to someone like me who is getting patients out of the emergency department? I always go down and look at the CT with the radiologist just to be 100% sure that we're dealing with uncomplicated I have had instances where the overnight read is different from the daytime read with the radiologist that I'm most comfortable with. Should I have the guts to go without antibiotics? What should I tell my colleagues? What should we tell our listeners? Here in Seattle, I think people are starting to understand the negative effects of antibiotics, and a lot of them are quite excited about that option. So I think it depends a bit about your culture, a bit about your individual comfort level. I think the bit about the reread on the CT, it's very interesting. If you look back at one of these randomized trials, they initially wanted to include only people with uncomplicated disease, but on later reread of the CT scans, a good handful of them did actually have small abscesses, and these patients appeared to do well despite not being treated with antibiotics. Again, I think it's your level of comfort. If you're able to have an intelligent conversation with the patient about the potential risks and benefits... For incident disease, I'm a little bit more reluctant now just because this recent long-term follow-up suggested that maybe more patients not treated with antibiotics opted for elective surgery in the first two years. 
I'm really hopeful there'll be more data and more trials with more power to study these long-term outcomes. In the future, there is one ongoing trial of outpatient treatment with antibiotics versus no antibiotics and uncomplicated disease that will add to existing data. Great. Well, I have had the guts to treat a couple patients just this past year without antibiotics, and I told them that the data were not clear that antibiotics helped, and there's certainly some data that antibiotics can hurt you. Both patients did well. Maybe I'm just on a lucky streak. One could point out that you have to have follow-up with those patients. If I don't treat with antibiotics, I want to know in two days, three days, whether they're doing better, they're the same, or they're worse, and always give the option to start antibiotics at that point. Right. So when I met this guy, he actually had probably seven or eight out of 10 pain. He was quite uncomfortable. As I read your article, I was trying to figure out what I should do about pain because of some of the findings of how some of the medications that we use may affect the diverticular disease down the road. Could you talk about that and tell me how you deal with pain in these patients? I think that pain medications during the acute episode is one of the big gaps in our knowledge. It really hasn't been studied. As you alluded to, some of the epidemiologic data suggests that certain pain medications, specifically non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and non-aspirin non-steroidals, as well as opiate medications, increase the incidence of diverticulitis. They have not been studied as pain medications once diverticulitis has started. But based on those, I think the go-to medicine should be Tylenol and antispasmodic medications such as dicyclamine or hyoscyamine. I use those as primary treatment. They may not be enough in some patients, and trials such as the antibiotics trials have used opiate medications as a second-line pain medication. So you could go to that, but I think with limited duration, given that they are associated with diverticulitis and perforated diverticulitis, I personally avoid non-steroidal anti-inflammatories because those are specifically associated with perforated diverticulitis, and I fear that I may convert what is uncomplicated disease potentially to complicated disease. Really, again, not based on studies in the acute setting. Well, when I read that, I had this uh, chagrin because uh, I had used non-steroidals to control the pain, and now I feel like maybe I need to revise my practice in the future. When do you feed these patients in the hospital and what kind of diets do you put them on? And then after we go through this, I'll tell you what happened to the patient and then we'll talk about what to do after discharge. Well, once again, there aren't good data on diet during the acute episode. Traditionally, it's been recommended that patients are NPO if they're very sick and have complicated disease, and I think they probably don't feel like eating. I think patients with less complicated or uncomplicated disease, it's generally recommended that they start with a clear liquid diet or at most a low residue or low fiber diet. So I typically recommend clear liquids for the first couple of days until a patient starts to feel a little bit better and then advance to a low residue, low fiber diet until the symptoms resolve. Most patients don't feel like eating a lot when they're in the first few days of diverticulitis, so most are sort of following this diet on their own anyway. There's only been one study that I'm aware of that looked at the sort of clear liquid, slow advancement diet versus feeding patients an unrestricted diet. Sorry, it wasn't a controlled study. It was just patients were given an unrestricted diet. It's unclear what to make of it because there was no control arm. 8% of patients ended up having what they described as a complication. I don't know what the complication rate would have been if they hadn't advanced their diet. So in general, I follow the traditional not evidence-based guidelines for a clear liquid diet with slowly advancing as symptoms resolve. 
And that's exactly what we did. By the next day, his pain had decreased to about 3 out of 10, where he was visibly wincing when I examined him the first day in the left lower quadrant and some pain on the right lower quadrant. The next day, he has no pain in the right lower quadrant and minimal pain in the left lower quadrant. He's up to soft diet, and he wants to go home. Do you have any problem with discharging him? No, at this point, I don't. It sounds like he's diet. He's getting better. I think he's a young, otherwise healthy patient. I would feel comfortable discharging him. So we scheduled him for a colonoscopy. Why did we do that? Well, there were early studies to suggest that diverticulitis is associated with colon cancer. That data was based on misdiagnoses. So even with CT scanning, some cases that look like diverticulitis will actually end up being a colon cancer, especially in cases of perforated diverticulitis. Estimates vary, and I think that the studies are biased in that patients who go on to have a colonoscopy, that group is probably enriched with patients where the suspicion for another diagnosis is higher. But it looks like maybe 1% of patients or 1 in 100 will end up having a colon cancer that was originally misdiagnosed as diverticulitis. That's the main reason to do a colonoscopy. The second reason, especially in a youngish patient like this patient, is that sometimes inflammatory bowel disease overlaps with diverticulitis. This patient seems to have pretty classic symptoms of diverticulitis, but occasionally we see patients that actually have inflammatory bowel disease on colonoscopy. Well, so he will be getting his colonoscopy. I guess the last big question, and I get asked this question all the time, both by friends and by patients, what lifestyle advice should I give to my patients? And I guess that includes diet, over-the-counter medications. What do you tell people who've had diverticulitis to try to decrease the chance of another episode? Yeah, diet and lifestyle are perhaps the areas where we have the most evidence, at least in terms of what predisposes patients to an initial attack. And we can sort of extrapolate and say that following those same guidelines might also help to prevent a recurrent event. And those data generally suggest that a high fiber diet that's also low in red meat is associated with a lower risk of diverticulitis. Sort of more generally a prudent diet or a non-Western diet So a diet that's rich in lean proteins like fish and chicken, high in vegetables, high in whole grains, not a diet that's heavy on processed foods, fat, and red meat. In addition, patients who are obese or overweight are at an increased risk of diverticulitis. Patients who are physically active, especially those that do regular vigorous activity, are at a decreased risk of diverticulitis. Patients who don't smoke, and patients who don't take non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. In fact, if you look at an epidemiologic study that looked at what portion of diverticulitis risk is attributable to these factors, it was 50%. So really, I think we can make a big impact by recommending these diet and lifestyle behaviors to our patients. And fortunately, there are also things that we would recommend to prevent other chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease. Yeah, so that's really encouraging because it's just another reason to try to encourage our patients to exercise and as a shorthand, we'll say eat a Mediterranean diet, which I think really does good for everybody. I was really fascinated. Everybody has asked me this when I told them I was doing this podcast, nuts and berries. 
Yeah, that's another thing that has been long-standing medical dogma. A large study that I was a part of looked at 50,000 men in the health professionals follow-up study. We had over 20 years of dietary data and follow-up for incident diverticulitis. And we looked at whether men who consumed more nuts, more popcorn, more corn were at increased risk of diverticulitis. And in fact, they weren't. Nuts and popcorn were actually slightly protective. So at least based on that one study, there's no reason to suggest that patients with diverticulosis avoid these foods. As a caveat, some patients feel really strongly that it was whatever they ate that happened to include berries or popcorn or whatever the day before they got diverticulitis. And if patients are convinced of this, then I generally have them avoid those foods. Of course. So this has been great can't tell you how much we appreciate this because this is such a common problem that in my experience when I discuss this with my colleagues, we all sort of know how to take care of it. But I think when they listen to how you went through everything, we'll all be much better off. What is the one single piece of information that you think is the most important that in your opinion, too many physicians don't know? I think there are several. I think that the idea of antibiotics being recommended on an individual basis is probably what physicians don't know and is the most relevant to practice. Maybe the, the nuts and popcorn and corn recommendation as well really haven't infiltrated, I think, into general practice. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. This has been brilliant, and I know that our listeners are going to love it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Lisa, as we talked about after we turned the podcast off, we're going to do an addendum. When do you call a surgeon for your patient with recurrent uncomplicated diverticulitis? Obviously, we're going to call them for many cases of complicated diverticulitis, but when do we need a surgeon for recurrent uncomplicated diverticulitis? I think this is a really important area. Traditionally, guidelines said in a young patient, this patient would qualify under 50, and in anyone with two or more episodes, perhaps only one episode in a young patient, they required elective sigmoid resection. I think we're accumulating more and more data to indicate that we need to take a more nuanced approach. And more recent guidelines basically say that, that the decision to pursue surgery for recurrent disease should be individualized and should not be based specifically on the age of the patient or the number of attacks. There are many criteria that I consider in recommending a patient for surgery, and those really come down to the severity and the frequency of attacks, how much those attacks are affecting the patient's quality of life, weighed against what their surgical risk is. I refer very few patients for surgery, and I refer patients to a thoughtful surgeon who will look at the whole picture. It's important to point out that elective sigmoid resection is not a perfect intervention for preventing recurrence. Recurrence rate is still as high as 15% after sigmoid resection because most individuals have diverticulosis or diverticula throughout their colon or in more than one spot in their colon. And that the risk of serious complications, even in expert centers and randomized trials, is somewhere between 10 and 25%. So really the decision for surgery is weighing How much is this affecting my life? How anxious am I about attacks? How much do each of these attacks really take me out of my daily life? Am I missing work? Is my quality of life decreased? And am I willing to accept the risk that I might not completely prevent recurrence and that I could have a surgical complication? That's what I discuss with patients and then send them on to a thoughtful surgeon to really talk about the risks and benefits of the specific surgery. 
Well, I'm so glad that we uh, recorded this addendum because I think it's a really important point. And thanks for mentioning it to me when we had finished the previous recording. That was great. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This is a particularly satisfying podcast because I learned so much from Lisa Strait. The first point is that when you have the likelihood of diverticulitis, you should do a CT scan at least in the first episode to document that you have the right diagnosis and to determine if it's complicated or uncomplicated. The strategies in uncomplicated diverticulitis are very different. Complicated diverticulitis will require consultation with surgeons, gastroenterologists, and perhaps even infectious disease specialists. In uncomplicated diverticulitis, you have a decision of whether or not to use antibiotics. This is clearly an evolving area, and sometimes you really do not need to use antibiotics. After you discharge the patient from the first episode, if they've not had a colonoscopy recently, then they do deserve a colonoscopy because there is a chance that you either have the wrong diagnosis still or that there's an underlying colon cancer. After you discharge the patient or when you see them back in your office, Lisa gave us some very good information on things that can decrease the risk of further diverticulitis. It was encouraging to me to know that the same advice I give for many other diseases, exercise, eat a Mediterranean diet, avoid certain medications, works for diverticulitis. And finally, in our extra section uh, that we recorded, she made clear to us that surgery is not a panacea for preventing recurrences. Even with surgery, there's still a recurrence rate because the diverticulosis is usually not confined just to the sigmoid colon. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and have learned something that will help you in your own practice. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.